When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 16th of December. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The efficient rollout of the booster campaign is the single most important tool in government's armoury in order to slow down the pace of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. We are now at a point where about 1.3 million uh, booster doses and third doses for the immunocompromised have been administered at this point. Currently, Ireland has the fourth highest rate of booster vaccination in Europe. And we are now going to significantly accelerate the rollout uh, of the booster vaccine. Now, it's all hands on deck. You'll be aware of what the Taoiseach has announced in relation to the extended opening hours of the centres, for example, uh, the new centres uh, that are going to be introduced in the coming days. Uh, we very much welcome the commitment that we're getting from general practice. They had almost 3,000 GPs and practice nurses took part in the IMO webinar last night. And we also are getting very positive feedback from the pharmacy sector. So we will see a very significant acceleration of the booster campaign. Michael McGrath, the Minister for Public Expenditure, was speaking during leaders' questions yesterday. Let's speak to one of the GPs that we heard a little bit about there, Monaghan-based GP, Alona Duffy, who's the Medical Director of NE Doc. Good morning. And thanks, as always, to you but all the more so today, I think, Dr Duffy, because I imagine you're exceptionally busy and you really are going into a very busy period, uh, I gather, from what we just heard there. Well, yes, Michael, you're right. I suppose Christmas is always busy because people, you know, first of all, it's wintertime, so more viruses and bugs. We're still seeing high levels of COVID in the community. And obviously everybody wants to be well for Christmas. So it's already busy. And we had been hoping, like many GPs, that our time doing vaccinations was coming to an end because most GPs, 75% of GPs, have continued to offer boosters to the over 70s and those at risk. And I suppose we had kind of felt our role would be finished. But as you're aware, um, we've now been asked to continue vaccinating. And not only that, but ramp it up to provide extra clinics, later clinics. And also we've been advised that we should be reducing down normal daytime activity, normal routine stuff. So I suppose the driving license, medicals, the the annual checkup that somebody might want to try and give more time to the vaccine clinics. And uh, it's going to be difficult, Michael. It definitely Mm -hmm. is. But we're hoping that um, with the buy-in of the public... 
number one, coming forward and getting your booster. Number two, maybe holding off on the routine stuff until after the new year. Well, COVID is very important and getting vaccinated against it equally is important, I'm sure. But if people are feeling sick with something other than COVID, should they contact their GP? Yes, yes. The doors are still open. And I think it's really important that that message gets out there. If you're unwell and it's not a COVID-related problem and you've had, let's say, it's COVID symptoms, but you've a negative COVID test and you're feeling worse, don't delay. Do contact us. We are here and we want to see and manage and treat those who need to be treated at this time. The only thing that's been delayed is the non-urgent routine stuff. So the well people are getting checked, but unwell people will still continue to be seen and treated by their GPs. Okay, if you are called to a GP to get a a booster, uh, in the first instance, that's what will happen. You'll get called, and it is a question of uh, don't call us, we'll call you, I take it, because otherwise your phone lines would be jammed day and night. Well, I think different practices are going to do different things, and many practices have created online booking facilities, so if your practice has a website, then you'll be able to go into that and in many cases book an appointment for a vaccine for the booster. Some clinics like our own are actually going to run walk-in clinics where you can attend and you know bring your details, your card from your previous vaccination. And once you meet the criteria of being over three months since your last uh, vaccine dose and that you haven't had COVID in the last six months and you're over 16 years of age, we're going to be happy to vaccinate you because we feel that most of our at-risk group have already been vaccinated. So I think every practice is doing it slightly differently. The, the one difficulty just at the moment is we have to wait on the doses to arrive because, as I said, we had planned to end our vaccines and many GPs had too. So now what's happening is over the next week, we will be contacted by somebody from the HSE to ask us how many doses, how many vials of vaccine we will require, and then they'll arrange for them to be delivered. But some practices actually won't receive those, and we figure we might be one of them until next Thursday. So um, it's going to take up to a week to get the vaccine. So I suppose give it a bit of time. But if you are concerned and you haven't heard anything from your GP practice, absolutely drop in or um, phone them if you can, or contact them through their website. Okay, talk us through uh, who can uh, get a booster from their GP because uh, it's changed somewhat overnight. Uh, Women over 16 who are expecting a baby, pregnant women, uh, people over 40 and so on. Yes, I suppose one of the reasons it's kind of being pushed with regards to the pregnant women is that we are continuing to see a low uptake of primary immunisation. So it's not just the boosters, but also women getting their first um, two doses of the vaccine. So I think um, GPs hadn't been giving this prior to this or hadn't, you know, some GPs might have, but officially this was being done through the hospital setting. But to try and offer that protection to these women, because we know there's a much higher risk of complications of ending up ventilated, ending up in ICU, and unfortunately complications for their baby too if they if they develop COVID infection. So the whole thing is to try and make it easier for these women especially to get mm. their vaccines in our community. Other groups are, um, we would hope that at this stage most people over the age of 70 have had the chance to get a vaccine. And if you haven't, so if you're over 70 and you haven't heard from your GP, then I think it's very much worthwhile ringing your GP practice because it may be that we've tried contacting you and haven't been able to get hold of you, that your number's changed, whatever. So if you're over 70 and haven't heard, definitely contact your practice. Okay. If you're over 70, 60? If, if you're over 60, well, basically, we've been advised now to move down through the age group. So right. we're meant to be working from 50s up. But again, depending on the size of your practice, and many people have already received vaccines in the mass vaccination clinics or through the pharmacy, 
Um, so we've been advised then to keep moving down and the aim is to vaccinate as many people as possible over the next few weeks. OK, so you uh, will be reaching out to people 50 and older in the first instance uh, and then you move to pregnant women over 16, is it? And no, pregnant women over 16 will be at the same time. So again, okay. they're counted now. They're joining the high-risk group that we would have been already trying to, to catch and vaccinate. OK, and then you've 40 to 49-year-olds. Yes, and I think keeping moving down. So right. don't be surprised if you're in your 40s and you get a call from your GP to say, actually, would you like to come in and get your vaccine? So I think a lot mm. of it will depend on capacity of practices and how they're able to facilitate this. Because while it's all very well us being told, you know, reduce down your service, your normal day service, to be able to vaccinate, that's physically not possible in smaller practices. One doctor practice can't you know, stop doing the normal work so they may be mm. a little bit slower, some other practices as well, yeah. for logistical mm. reasons may not have the space. Now, I suppose the one good thing that came yesterday was that the 15-minute wait is no longer a requirement. Yeah. Now, it will be a requirement if you're still having the first two doses of your vaccine. So, if you're someone who hasn't had the vaccine yet, remember, it's never too late. Contact your GP, contact your pharmacy or register online for mass vaccination clinics and you will be offered the primary immunisation, so that's the first two doses if it's uh, Moderna or Pfizer. And But uh, those people will continue to have to wait 15 minutes. If you have a history of allergies, so severe allergic reactions, you've needed adrenaline or you carry adrenaline, you will also be required to continue to wait for 15 minutes. And um, If it's your first mRNA vaccine, you'll be required to wait 15 minutes. So if you had a Johnson & Johnson or an AstraZeneca and you're now getting a booster of either Moderna or Pfizer, you mm. will be asked to wait 15 minutes. But if this is your third Pfizer or you know, you've had Moderna and you're now getting a Pfizer, you'll be able to leave. But we will be asking you to remain in the locality or to remain with someone just on the off chance, the small chance that you develop a reaction. OK, will uh, you be seeing people who had the one-shot Janssen, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, quicker than you would see people who are in the same age cohort because there is some concern about people who had that vaccine because it has waned pretty quickly, two to three months after getting the vaccination and it's thought at least that there's little protection after that and it seems that from the government rollout perspective uh, when it comes into appointments from the HSE and that uh, those people uh, who got the Janssen and Jackson vaccine are going to be pushed up the, the list. Uh, that That's those who are under 30 years of age and they'll be seen at the same time uh, as people who are aged 30 and older and this is a little bit of what Michael McGrath the Minister had to say in the doll about that yesterday uh, We are concerned about the specific issue that you have raised in relation to people who have received uh, the single shot Janssen vaccine because of the uh, the waning effectiveness over time and I know that Minister Donnelly has raised this specific issue with uh, the CMO Dr Hulan uh, and indeed with NIAC and while they are approved to receive uh, the, the booster vaccine, uh, we, it has not been suggested to us that they should be prioritised ahead of older cohorts. So that's where things stand. But we, we do expect to receive a reply to that uh, shortly. Is that uh, something GPs will be considering, Dr Duffy? Well, we won't have that ability because we don't have easy access to know what vaccine um, people got because obviously GPs weren't giving the Johnson & Johnson in their surgery. So we, we won't have a list of our patients who received it. So that's where the HSE have the advantage and hopefully those people will be prioritised through the mass vaccine clinics. OK, well, all of this has got to do with what could be a tidal wave uh, of uh, coronavirus uh, because of Omicron. It's very transmissible, possibly seven times more transmissible than Delta uh, and Nefid meets today. 
What should NEFID be considering, do you think, Dr Duffy? And if you were uh, one of the members of NEFID, what would you be suggesting should be recommended to government? Well, I think, as you said, this is highly transmissible, much more transmissible than previously felt initially. So uh, the big worry is that while the feeling is that we may see mild symptoms in the majority of people, and especially those who are vaccinated, the volume of positive cases is going to be so high and the transmission is going to be so high in the community that those who are vulnerable and those who are unvaccinated are going to remain high risk and we will see a rise in hospital admissions. And that's been shown in other countries where we're starting to see the numbers rise rapidly. So what we've got to do is ensure that we're keeping to, holding the line on everything. Number one, vaccination is important, but I think World Health Organization have been quite clear. It's not enough. It is about trying to prevent the transmission. So it's again about you know, limiting contact with large groups, wearing the masks when you're out and about. And I do feel we're probably going to have to look at, at some things like perhaps schools, perhaps they should close this Friday. I mean, no decision has been made on that. But, you know, really, if we can try getting a circuit break in our classrooms, because we know that transmission already prior to the, the new variant has been really high in the school setting that I think perhaps to allow time over Christmas to have that circuit break and encourage people really not to have large gatherings in their homes, not to be going places if you're unwell. And again, if you have any symptoms, no matter how mild they are, considering could this be COVID and arranging a PCR test. It really is the wrong time of the year to be asking people to do that for the right reason, no doubt. Uh, Does it apply if everybody's had a booster? Um, the booster, again, it's hoped, it, it, I suppose the aim of that is to stop serious illness. It's not really going to change anything to do with transmission. And that's, that's I suppose, been one of the learning points with the vaccination programme. We initially thought, vaccinate everybody and we're going to stop transmission. You'll be less likely to have enough of a viral load to spread it. We do know that the spread is for a shorter period of time. So normally when you have a, a viral infection, you'll have a high viral load over a number of days and therefore you'll be infectious to others. Being vaccinated shortens that period of time. So I'm again, giving an example, it may go from three days of infectivity to one day. And I'm making that figure up because I don't have the hard data mm. on, it, on it with regards to the vaccinations and, and, the, and the COVID infection. However, we know that it does shorten it, so therefore it does have a positive impact. So again, it is back to the vaccination. If you're, if you're due one, if you're offered one, absolutely take it. But again, you know, I think the symptoms, we're still getting calls in from people who are, have symptoms, sinusitis type symptoms, cough and things for days, but because they don't feel particularly unwell, they're choosing to ignore the fact that this could be COVID and they're avoiding going for a test. Don't delay getting your test. And for many reasons, number one, if you are positive, you're continuing to spread it to those you love and those you care for in your home. And obviously, if you're leaving your home to others again. But number two, it means that if you have a COVID test, we know it's negative. It will stop us delaying seeing you. So if we know you have a cough and you're you're running temperatures, but you're COVID negative and you're becoming more unwell, GPs will be less reluctant to see you and it'll be easier to get you into a clinic and see you knowing you're not going to infect us, our staff or other patients in the surgery. Okay, well, I I know you've a busy surgery to attend to. Thank you very much for your time at such a busy time and for joining us on the programme this morning, Dr Duffy. That's Dr. Alona Duffy, who's a GP based in Monaghan and the medical director of NEDOC. Michael Reed on LMFM. Can you imagine a man going out at night with drugs and the sole intention of having those drugs is to drug a woman with the intention of compromising that woman so that he could have sex with her, whether she wanted to have sex with him or not? 
Well, it does happen. Uh, and what is amazing is that it happens an awful lot, it seems. It seems like psychotic behaviour, but uh, maybe there's a, a lot of people out there who have psychotic problems. Uh, one thing we know is that Neffet is going to meet today and they are not going to recommend reopening nightclubs, whatever about putting in further restrictions or restaurants closing earlier or whatever. They're not going to recommend reopening nightclubs. And if this type of spiking of drinks and so on was to happen, you'd imagine it happened in nightclubs. I don't know, were the nightclubs open this year for two months, if even that? But somehow over the course of the year, there were 46 spiking incidents and 25 of those incidents involved people bringing needles or syringes in order to inject drugs into other people. It's incredible stuff and uh, very hard to understand. Nolan Blackwell is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Very good morning to you, Nolan, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, is it generally nightclubs that this sort of thing happens? And is it usually or always uh, for the sole purpose of having sex with someone, whether they uh, agree to it or not? Uh, no, no, it's not only nightclubs and it's not only uh, to sexually assault somebody either. Uh, but actually, the very fact that 46 people are reporting it, I think, Michael, is probably an improvement on before because so-called spiking, which is a word that I think doesn't explain at all how criminal this behaviour is. And your, 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 you know, your outline at the start was absolutely right. There is no way in which this contamination of another person's drink or, um, or, or you know, uh, injecting them, which seems to be this new phenomenon. There is no way that this can be done by accident or without malice aforethought. You know, you have to plan to actually make somebody incapable of managing themselves. You have mm. to actually poison them. What and, are they and, injecting but, them with? Well, again, you see, I, I think that's part of the problem is that people are trying to think, why can't they find out what they're being injected with? And it is because it's, it's really uh, like the hospitals need to have some sort of a clue what's making somebody ill before they can test for it. There's so many drugs out there. We know that it is li- that's likely to be the minor phenomenon. The truth is that this spiking, this contamination of drinks by drugs or by extra alcohol or by alcohol at all, this has been going on for a long time, but people have tended not to report it because they kind of think I got caught or I'm to blame in some ways. So it's great that people are starting to report it. Um, and we know that the most common way of spiking our contaminant is by drink. Mm. And that is we hear often of in a bar at a party. At a party, you can imagine this, and a lot of people will have seen it. They will have seen someone take out, say, a bottle of tasteless alcohol, like perhaps vodka or something, pour it into a punch bowl that already has drink into it. You hear of people pouring drink into other people's soft drinks, let alone doubling or tripling the drink Mm. that they asked for. So this is spiking. This is contaminating someone. This is, as as Minister McEntee put it yesterday, this is poisoning. Right. And... And it is, you know, it has to be... Is the person doing it, is the person doing it setting out to harm other people or are are they actually sharing their drugs? Are are they putting uh, their benzos in, Valium or whatever, into some of uh, these drugs or are they injecting cocaine into people and things that they think are, are valuable substances that everybody enjoys? 
Yeah, so it's again, I have I have yet to understand the mindset. I actually wish a number of people who think this is a fun thing to do or in any way an acceptable thing to do. I wish someone would do a documentary with them or just if they come and talk to me to kind of understand what is going on. We if it's somebody taking drugs that they possibly know within it uh, and 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 putting them into somebody else's uh, drink say, for instance, and there are these so-called date rape drugs that yeah. have been around for a while, the, the Rohypnol, um, various other ones, which, which are tasteless and odourless, and they just go into the drink. That can only be to render somebody incapable, to harm them, so that you can either rob them or uh, assault them physically or assault them sexually. And how common is that? Uh, because whilst both are wrong, uh, they're two very different uh, situations, aren't they? That if you're giving somebody a, a bit of your cocaine that you're going to take yourself, yeah. uh, whether they agree to it or, or not, or you're drugging them with Rohypnol so that they'll conk out and you can have sex with them. They're, they're, they're very different scenarios. They're, they're very different. Well, actually, um, injecting somebody with cocaine uh, that they don't know or consent to being injected with as well is, I, I think, on the level as well of severe criminal activity. So both of them are, are severe criminal activity. Um, and both of them are uh, indicate that you want to alter somebody's frame of mind. You want to alter the way that they can consent. And if you do that, if you reduce their capacity to consent to whatever action you take next, if that's in the area of sexual activity, then you are committing sexual abuse up to and including rape. So, you know, there's no, there's no excuse for it. There is no, no, there's no possible way in which it can be justified. And still, Michael, here's the thing, I think, that like, okay, so this campaign has been launched by Minister Harris, who's heard about it uh, in relation to the students, and Minister McEntee, who is, after all, the Minister for Justice. They've launched this campaign to say to people, we know it happens, which is great, because Actually, a lot of the time, uh, people feel that somebody just thinks they've had too much to drink, whereas genuinely this this is an issue. Uh, so, so it's it's recognising that it's an issue, it's, and it's also telling people how to maybe help people, not to leave people, uh, not to abandon them uh, if they're if you're out in a group. But the other thing that I think we really need to get home is that there's a really good chance other people know about this because it, it, you hear of it happening a group of people will um, will know that this is happening, that one of their company is going to engage in this. And we really don't focus on them saying, I am having nothing to do with this. You're not to do that. I'm taking the drugs away from you. And I'm certainly going to warn the person you are going to make a target, a victim of your criminal activity. Mm. So we don't have, you know, we really, I think there is so much that could be done by by everybody. It does seem to be happening more to young people uh, than to older people, but it is definitely happening in groups. Other people know it is happening and it really is going to take every single person to kind of say, I'm having nothing to do with that. I wouldn't do it. I won't uh, collude in anybody doing it mm. and I will warn somebody and I will report you okay. for poisoning somebody else. Right. Uh, well, if somebody has Rohypnol, um, that's one thing um, and their intention is clear but if somebody has cocaine where are they getting so much cocaine that they can give it away I thought it was very expensive and that you'd build up a habit and you'd need to be robbing houses to feed your habit and all of that sort of thing uh, apart from just giving it to people who don't even want it 
Yeah, and and I mean, giving it again, the whole idea, uh, again, these are still under investigation. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about alarming, um, um, you know, about about what way this is going to turn out. But also giving it to somebody, uh, assaulting somebody physically with a needle that could be a dirty needle, you know, that could give people all sorts mm. of uh, other uh, disease and harm as well. It, it's just, it's almost, it's it's almost, that's beyond mm. my comprehension. HIV, meningitis and so on, absolutely. Needles are, are very, very dangerous things. And uh, I thought uh, most people would have known this at the stage. But are, are drugs so readily available that people can throw it around like confetti? Yeah, and uh, well, it's, I, I think the part of the problem will be identifying what drugs have been used um, in, uh, in 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 these ones, in mm. the syringe ones that are being spoken about right now. I think that's still speculation because this seems to be a really new phenomenon. Uh, it's something that has only come up in the UK in the last few months, okay. um, and and uh, so I think there's a. There, I mean, I, I I would have I would have thought that people had their work cut out to pay for their you know the their drugs themselves, but uh, mm. but clearly there are people who will, at some level anyway, pay money to harm somebody else in this way, and yeah. it is it's it's of course it's much harder to spot than it would be to spot a gun going into a bar or nightclub. Mm. But I think the other thing is that this might be a way in which um, bars, nightclubs, places where a drink is, people can actually recognise that somebody may be actually in trouble as a result of having a drink spiked or whatever. So in some ways, just raising the profile of this, recognising that people can actually be victims of this, mm. uh, can might be helpful yeah. in terms of just making sure people are safe. If there's a, a young girl who can't stand up, uh, maybe somebody yeah. put her into that condition. Uh, what about the date rape group? drugs, uh, do you get them on the internet? Is it two clicks in a credit card and yeah. your ohypnol arrives in the post or do you go down to your local dealer uh, and uh, buy that off then? Yeah, well, uh, again, the, the guards would have better information on this than me, but my understanding is that the internet is your go-to place uh, right. for, for that kind of drug. Uh, and again, People who buy it off the internet, of course, have mm. no idea how safe it is either. Yeah. And they, you know, they could be doing... But they go looking damage. for it. They, they really go out of their way on the yeah. internet looking for it, breaking the law uh, for something that they're going to give to somebody else so that they can break the law in assaulting them. It's, uh, yeah. It is psychotic, yeah. isn't it? Oh, it's, 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 it's deeply harmful. And it kind of goes way beyond any possibility that there could be a reasonable explanation for it. You are setting out to harm somebody Mm. either for fun or in order to assault them or in order to rob them. These are the only reasons you could do it. Okay, we're going to give your phone number out, Nolene, for two reasons, I think. Uh, One, you said you'd love to hear from somebody who's involved in doing this. Uh, And uh, I presume you'd talk to them without any consequence for them. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I, I really would love somebody to, to talk to me and if they're not prepared to give me their details, fine. But I would love to know, is there a way in which people can justify this to themselves? Mm. Because I'm at a total loss on this one. Normally I can see, you know, why somebody might feel that for, for whatever reason, yeah. the way they go Are you trying to get back at somebody or are you having a laugh or what is yeah. it? But just 
try and explain that from their perspective as they see it to you so that you can understand it. Uh, And then the other thing is if uh, somebody has been drugged and they're worried uh, about what happened afterwards because they don't remember, uh, maybe they want to talk to you as well. Exactly. And and the line is there 24-7 every day of the year. Okay, and that's one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight, and it will be open of uh, over the Christmas uh, as well, Nolan. Uh, as you say, every day of the year, twenty four hours a day, one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. That's uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis twenty four hour helpline. And thank you, as always, for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Nolan Blackwell is uh, Chief Executive Officer of Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, carers have not had a, a good year. It would seem to be the case uh, according to the Family Carer Scorecard, which has selected and scored uh, the progress of many of uh, the commitments made in the programme for government. Let's uh, talk to Catherine Cox, who's Head of Communications and Carer Engagement with Family Carers Ireland. A very good morning to Catherine and uh, thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. I think you looked at 18 commitments and and uh, am I right in saying it, it wasn't a good year for carers? You are, unfortunately. Um, Michael, if we look, yep, 18 commitments that they made in the programme for government. So they made these commitments to family carers. Um, the programme is now uh, 18 months uh, into its five-year term. And unfortunately, of the 18 commitments, none have been achieved in full. Um, two have got good progress, four more have got what we call limited or slow progress, but unfortunately seven we've scored with no progress and five have actually gone backwards or regressed. And it's important to say that when I say we scored, family carers scored these as well. They joined us and we took them through all the commitments. We also went to government, we went and asked parliamentary questions to get the answers to see how well they had progressed. So unfortunately if it was the leaving search, we wouldn't be uh, giving them a pass by any uh, stretch of the imagination on this one. Okay. What's the biggest disappointment, Catherine? I think the biggest one is probably respite because it's probably the biggest challenge that family carers face. Even before the pandemic, respite was, you know, inequitable, inconsistent. Some families get none, others get the minimum. So I think respite has actually gone backwards. And we can understand that too in in the sense of we have gone through and are still in a pandemic. And so it has been extremely difficult for everybody in society, including our health services. But at the same time, we can't use that either as an excuse not to put supports in place to keep family carers caring safely for their loved ones. So respite has gone backwards, unfortunately. All right. Uh, and what does that mean for people who are not able to avail of respite? Uh, they are working around the clock as it is, uh, but it, it means there isn't a break, obviously. But what, what does that mean um, to their mental health, uh, to... Mm-hmm. Uh, their ability to continue to cope and care for the people that they love? It it just means that so many more family carers are coming to us at burnout stage. They're saying, in many cases, they can't do this anymore. Some haven't had a break in, as you said, more than two years, some three, four, five years. Some families have never had respite. We had a carer um, on the radio yesterday who hasn't had respite in seven years. So, so this is, respite is crucial. And whether it's residential respite where the person uh, being cared for goes into residential respite to give the carer a break. And sometimes that break is literally the carer catching up on sleep that they haven't had for nights, for weeks, months even. So 
it, it's so important that they get to recharge their battery, take some time away from their caring role. And it's really important for the person they're caring for as well because they get um, to, I suppose, remove themselves from the caring role as well. So it's vital. Respite is vital for the mental health in particular of the family carer. And we did some research during, obviously, the pandemic um, and the impact on carers' physical but also mental health has been huge. And many are seeking counselling, seeking mental uh, support. Um, so it has been extremely difficult and carers will not be able to continue caring if they don't get adequate support um, and services put in place. Okay, uh, and that means that somebody is cared for elsewhere for a short period of time while the mm-hmm. carer, who is usually a family member uh, who, who looks after them, uh, gets a, a break. But there's a problem as well with residential places. There is, and there's a huge problem with future planning. Um, We know there are family carers out there, particularly maybe elderly parents who have a child, adult with disability. Their biggest fear is what happens when they can no longer care or when, God forbid, they pass away themselves. There is no future planning for residential places or very little. Um, And so many families tell us that if something were to happen then, they're young adult maybe would most likely end up in a nursing home which is completely inappropriate setting for a young person maybe in their 30s 40s um, so we really need to see future planning we know how many people there are we can you know plan for the future to ensure that there is a transition period when somebody if they need to go into residential care that there is a transition period there where they can move and that can be done over a year can be done over a number of years but that that planning is there for the future because the biggest worry is what happens when the family care can't care anymore and that time will come to everybody most likely. Right, and it's a a worry for all families in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, COVID though, uh, obviously a factor in the lack of progress, um, but that's not an excuse that's acceptable to you. It's not. um, And look, we do accept it. And, you know, I think it is important to say as well that there have been some positives. um, And in particular, there's two good progresses, for example. And one is around developing a pension solution for carers who have been cared for more than 20 years. So there has been positive moves on that. Uh, The Pension Commission have made recommendations and we would hope they will come into place in March of next year. So it is important to recognise when something good is happening. Um, There was an increase in the care support grant last year went from 1700 to 1850 and the income disregard moved for the first time in 13 years so we recognize some things have been done we're 18 months into a program for government um, but really i think the message here is it's far too slow um, and we've gone backwards in some areas so for the next 12 months next year the government really needs to step up and really put in place supports that will help and impact on family care's lives in a positive way. And it's not always about just money. It, while we do need mm. financial uh, support, there's no doubt about that. It's also about services and support and looking at consistency across the country. You know, And we go back to the postcode lottery, where you live determines what you will or what you won't get. We need to see consistent supports put in place in a carer's home based on their individual needs. And every family, for example, should have a right to a a statutory right to a minimum of 20 days respite per year. Some families get none, some families get more. But as a very minimum, we are saying 
we, we have legislation coming down the road next year around a statutory entitlement to home care. Within that, we need a statutory legal right to minimum 20 days respite for every family carer. Okay, Catherine, we have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, as always. Thanks so much, Mike. Catherine Cox, Head of Communications and Carer Engagement with Family Carers Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Christmas can be an awfully lonely time of the year, especially if you are on your own. But if you are on your own, the senior line would like you to know that it doesn't have to be a silent night on Christmas night. Indeed, you don't have to be in silence. There's someone to talk to you right throughout the Christmas period. And let's talk to Anne Dempsey, who's the communications manager and training facilitator with Senior Line for Third Age. Ireland. Good morning, Anne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Uh, And you're highlighting how this service is a a lifeline uh, for people, or can be, uh, and great company for people, apart from anything else. uh, And uh, that's something that's very important at this time of the year. That's it, Michael, exactly. Uh, The fact that we're open right throughout Christmas, every day from 10 until 10, when most, a lot of statutory services are closed, and I would have told you in earlier years, Michael, that Christmas Day is one of our busiest days, which is kind of sad in some ways, but it's good that we're there. And just taking up your point, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about what we do, and what we do is kind of very simple in some ways. It's just talking to people. And if you just take the just out of that, I mean, it's people who are on their own, having somebody to talk to. And just one of the people I was talking to about was Joan, who, Joan was with it some years ago and she had a very happy marriage and she was bereft, really bereft, a great woman, a very redoubtable woman, but bereavement hit her hard and then COVID hit her and she was confined to barracks and hated because she's very sociable and she talks to us every day and mm. so we've, we're kind of like her, her neighbours over the garden fence. Yeah, and I, I take it that yeah. people like Joan uh, who call you every day make a point of calling you on Christmas Day because there's a a friendship uh, that builds up. Very much so. Very much so. Mm. And, um... Yes, like, you know the way, you know the way sometimes, Michael, they change the TV listings over Christmas. Mm. And it's lovely in some ways. But in other ways, you, you miss your favourite programmes because they're gone somewhere else. Mm. Mm. So we're not gone anywhere else. We're still there. We're available. All our volunteers working voluntarily on Christmas Day. And our volunteers get an awful lot out of mm. it as well. So yeah. it's win-win. They love doing it on Christmas Day. I'm sure they do. You know, yeah. it gives mm. a bit of meaning to their Christmas as well. Yeah. And they can squirrel off an hour or two and be available. Yeah, well, it gives them somebody to talk to that they can understand because everybody is uh, on the same level in that uh, everybody is uh, of an older age group. Some people are older than others uh, and uh, you have some people in their 50s who are calling you. Yes, we have we, we have an age range. I mean, most of our callers would be in between 60s and 70s. But on either side, I'm just thinking of one caller that we've particularly helped with over the last number of years. She began to phone us just after her mother died and she was bereft. She's a younger woman. She's only mid-50s. And but she was single. Her mother was her life and I think she was probably her mother's life. And she's... I suppose she would represent someone, Michael, who needs kind of almost an advocate in life. I think mm-hmm. though she was very protected and she was like, 
bit like a two-year-old when she began to only, I don't mean to be patronising, but she needed an awful lot of help to kind of get confidence in herself, make her own decisions, move out into the world. And mm. we've really been keeping her company in helping her to do that over the past few years. And she's come on by leaps and bounds. She's currently applying for jobs and mm. delighted with herself. Okay. And I suppose when I think of senior line, I, I, I think, uh, <coughs> excuse me, probably of... Uh, people in their 60s and 70s, uh, maybe older than that, uh, but people who are at home alone, that's not always the case because you do hear from people who are in hospital as well at times. We do indeed. Um, we have people in hospital, not so much people in uh, your short term situation, but people we've, I'm thinking of a caller, a number of callers in long stay at the minute who are, you know, their days are very, very long. And again, it just if somebody's lucky enough to hear about us, that, that that's it. They have the number. They phone sometimes a bit, you know, tentatively, mm. and they're delighted at such the warm welcome. And there's no judgment, and there's just an interest and a listening. And this caller I'm thinking about phones us very, very readily, and loves that we know him. You know, to be known is so important, and we know his name, and we greet him by name, and we recognise him, and just to be seen. When you're not seen very much in mm. life, I think it's terribly important. Yeah, well, that's great company. Uh, the number, by the way, if people are interested in writing it down, is one eight hundred eighty forty five ninety one. This is a senior line, and we're going to repeat that number uh, again in a few moments. So, if you didn't get the chance to write it down, you would like to have the number and to call it uh, at some stage over the Christmas or today, maybe. Uh, we'll repeat it in a minute if you want to get a, a pen and a paper. Uh, you said uh, that you've callers of all ages from 50 up uh, and uh, um, no doubt you've uh, some people in their 80s who get in touch as well, Anne. We have, we've, we've, yeah, and sometimes those callers are, are the more difficult ones because, again, there might be very few people left in that person's life. A lot of friends and family are gone. And sometimes when friends and family are around, it's not the most helpful thing. I'm thinking about one of our callers. I, in fact, took the call myself recently uh, a great woman, a very spry woman in many ways, but being suffered abuse, being suffering from abuse, and really didn't know when to turn, where to turn. A lot of abuse calls are people. Women in, in, have moved through young old, through mid old to old old, and this is a case in point. And we we were able to help her very, very considerably, I think, in that we were the first organisation to which she disclosed. And I think that's the value of a phone call as well, that you can kind of have control, you can say what you want to say, you have autonomy. Mm. And we listened and we discussed her options and we we discussed who in the family might she be able to turn to and she identified somebody. And then, as I think I would have told you, we have the contact details of every HSE safeguarding and protection officer around the country. Mm. And we gave her this contact. Now, again, we often give this, Michael, and some callers don't, they don't necessarily take it down, but they know it's there then, maybe for future reference. Okay. And those HSE teams are excellent. Yeah, well, it's great that people can call and chat, talk about what's on the telly and what's not on the telly, as you said yeah. earlier on, or, yeah. uh, you know, if uh, the grandkids are around in the morning or that you're hoping to see them tomorrow morning or, or whatever it is, uh, and just to have a, a chat. Uh, but as you say, you also offer advice like that when people have problems or they're looking for information and you can direct them uh, to other authorities, uh, yeah. uh, such as the HSE Safeguarding and Protection Team, if that's what they're looking for. If uh, that's what they're looking for, yeah. But it's frequently 
simply that they don't know of those. Even to tell them, it's a kind of another arsenal in their armory. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. no doubt, uh, uh, it's a service that people trust. It's great trust, I think, with the senior line. So uh, I, I'm sure that uh, people uh, would uh, avail of that information and take it on board uh, when it comes from such a trustful source. You're open from ten in the morning, so you opened there ten minutes ago. Uh, we that's did. The, the phone lines yeah. open ten minutes ago. I'm sure you're. <laughs> they're earlier than that uh, but the phone lines open at 10 in the morning and they stay open till 10 o'clock at, at night Anne. Uh, yeah till 10 at night um, and uh, it's normally a three hour rota uh, Michael our volunteers would be on say from 10 until 1 and then mm. a new team take over 1, one to 4 4 to 7 7 to 10 on Christmas day the rotas are short because you know but again but it's still covered it's, it's covered yeah. right the way through and people and our volunteers are so good we have no problem getting somebody to work on Christmas day it's I'm really sure. lovely okay well it's one eight hundred. 804591 that's 1800 804591 thank you very much indeed Anne for joining us this morning and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people who'd be very thankful that you'll be there on Christmas day Christmas night and right through the Christmas as well for that matter and thank you for that that's thank Anne you, Dempsey man. communications manager and training facilitator with senior line uh, run by Third Age Ireland. Now, Eugene McGuire, thanks for your email. Eugene says, Michael, I'm just wondering uh, that uh, about the booster vaccine uh, and our COVID certs, uh, because uh, we all need to get the boosters. Now, the vaccine, uh, are, are the COVID certs uh, that were issued after two vaccines valid now? Uh, Eugene says, I can't see how they could be as we are all advised to get a booster to combat the new variant. Uh, thanks, Eugene, for that. Uh, they were talking about that in uh, the Dáil yesterday, in actual fact, and uh, Michael McGrath, who we heard earlier on, the Minister for Public Expenditure, was taking leaders' questions, uh, and he said that the uh, COVID certs will change, but not until everybody has had the opportunity to get the booster. Brian Andrahada says it is impossible for the over 50s in Louth to get vaccine boosters this week. They're not taking the over 50s until next week at the walk-in centre in Dundalk and I am having no luck with my GP or pharmacy as uh, their waiting lists are so long. I'm feeling very frustrating hearing about it on the radio and the TV. Over 50s are getting vaccinated at the moment when we are not, not even though we want to. Uh, Thanks uh, for that, uh, Brian. Take a look at the other walk-in centres, look at the HSE website or the HSE Twitter feed uh, and if you can drive you might go to Navan, you might go to Castle Blaney, you might go to Swords. Uh, The City West uh, centre quite often has uh, spaces for people or no waiting times, uh, more to the point if they are available to your age cohort on the day. Worth looking uh, and not just looking once a day because they change over the course of the day depending on demand. Uh, Liz Andrade says she got her booster from her GP yesterday. I don't particularly like having to get it but I, I did so to protect myself and others. I'm conscious with the new variant that there will probably be more pressure than ever on our hospitals and the intensive care units. And I'm really concerned about that, Liz says. Uh, The more of us who can stay out of hospital and ICUs, the better I feel. Uh, uh, that the booster should help with all of this as it prevents you from getting seriously ill it seems in most cases. Uh, We do not want to be in a position where doctors are going to have to choose as to who gets an ICU bed. Very true Liz, very wise. Thank you indeed uh, for your call and making your comment on the programme with us today. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. The health regulation of termination of pregnancy, fetal pain relief bill was debated in the Dáil yesterday. It's uh, P. 
piece of legislation that was brought forward by the rural independents and the motion yesterday was moved by Carol Nolan. In this regard, I wish to highlight the short report on fetal pain published by the Oireachtas Life and Dignity Group. The report pointed to a major review of the scientific literature on fetal pain that was published in the influential Journal of Medical Ethics in 2020. In their article, Professor Stuart Derbyshire and Dr John Bachman say research indicates unborn babies might be able to feel something like pain as early as 13 weeks. The lead author of the review, it might be noted, was Professor Derbyshire, who had previously acted as a consultant to the US's largest abortion provider, Planned Parenthood. In 2006, he wrote in the British Medical Journal that not talking to women seeking abortions about pain experienced by unborn babies was sound policy based on good evidence that fetuses cannot experience pain. However, on foot of his latest review, he says it is now clear that the 2006 consensus is no longer scientifically tenable. The authors went on to note that given the evidence that the foetus might be able to experience something like pain during later abortions, it seems reasonable that the clinical team and the pregnant woman are encouraged to consider fetal pain relief. We'll hear arguments on both sides of uh, this. Independent Carol Nolan for the bill. David Cullinan of Sinn Féin opposed to it. We must trust doctors to deliver the service in an ethical and safe way. If they do not, there are mechanisms for recourse via the professional and regulatory institutions such as the Medical Council. There is nothing prohibiting the administration of pain relief where deemed necessary by a clinician in the existing legislation. If there are difficulties in providing such pain relief where a clinician deems it necessary, then that is something which the health service must rectify. But in my view, and the fundamental point here is that we must trust our doctors. We must acknowledge that this is a decision for the medical professional who is carrying out the procedure. It is not appropriate, in my view to mandate compulsory treatments. It is not uh, appropriate, in my view, to mandate care pathways or uh, patient treatment plans in legislation. That would not work in any other sphere of healthcare. There is nothing preventing the medical profession from coming to a view and setting requirements and guidelines, which they continue to review and reformulate in accordance with a medical scientific approach. That is the approach we support for delivering any necessary pain relief because the appropriate place for regulating such practices are the clinical guidelines for termination of pregnancy and not legislation. Opposing the bill, David Cullinan of Sinn Féin there. Now let's hear from independent Michael Collins who supported the bill. It is uh, interesting to note that the Animal Health and Welfare Act 2013 clearly mandates the use of an appropriate anaesthetic animals uh, to, to animals to prevent or relieve any pain during an operation or procedure. I wonder uh, whether there have been any concerns about those 2013 uh, dull uh, legislators. Have any of them moved from being policymakers to being vets yet? But there are. 
other reasons why it may not be prudent or indeed ethical to simply repeat the mantra that we should just trust doctors unquestionably when it comes to the topic of fetal uh, pain relief. In the first instance, it is clear that despite having had three years to do so, there are yet no guidelines around the administration of anaesthesia uh, during uh, abortion procedures. No guidelines yet, despite the fact that we now know that late-term abortions are being performed in Ireland. Uh, no guidelines yet, despite the fact that we now know that fetal pain is likely experienced much earlier in pregnancy than previously thought. No guidelines yet, despite the fact that we now know that two extremely brutal abortion methods are being used during late-term abortions in Ireland, D&D, or disember, uh, dismemberment uh, abortions, uh, foetuside, uh, the second one is foetuside involving lethal Injection. From independent Michael Collins on one side to the other side and Labour's Ivana Bakich. ...to repeal the Eighth Amendment. If I had known as a 21-year-old activist that it would take over three decades to repeal the Eighth Amendment and to deliver health care to women in this country, I think I would have... I don't know what I would have done, but certainly, you know, it was, it was so such a relief to so many of us of my generation to see repeal finally happen in 2018. We don't want to go back, Minister. We want to ensure that we move forward, that we build on the services that are available and the legislative provisions that are clearly set out in the 2018 Act. We want to ensure our clinical guidelines deliver doctors and medical professionals the guidance they need to ensure that the Act is implemented with compassion, with empathy and with care for for women who are pregnant and who are facing crisis pregnancy and who, uh, who require terminations of pregnancy. That's the clear pathway forward that we want to see in my party and I believe that the majority of people in Ireland do want to see the clear majority as represented by that tremendous vote in 2018. Let's not go back, let's ensure that none of our daughters or granddaughters have to live under the chill of the Eighth Amendment or have to endure the sort of terrible consequences that so many women endured in this country for far too long. Labour's Ivana Bakage opposed. Independent Danny Healy-Ray in favour. Pain relief for animals is provided for in primary legislation, and properly so. The Animal Health and Welfare Bill of 2013 provides that veterinarians administer pain relief during any procedures or interventions that would cause pain to the animal. Surely we must ensure that unborn babies with a heartbeat are dealt with in a compassionate way and give them pain relief. If there's any humanity in the government, I'm asking them, why are you putting down, why are you putting down an amendment to, to a bill that's as harmless as this? Is it just because they want to oppose what, what ordinary people uh, that want to uh, stop uh, uh, children, little babies, of having pain in this way? And it's such a small thing to ask. We should be, we should be asking that we left leave but at this stage, no, because of the of the of the the the, the, the abortion laws that were passed and changed, this this is all we can ask for, and we're we're asking for more hearts out that he that he adhere to what we're asking, and please help little little babies that that have done nothing in the wrong to anyone in this world. If we don't help these, I, I can't see that he will help anyone at all that he is supposed to be helping while you're in, in government. 6,666 children were uh, aborted in the first year 
after the legislation was changed. Social Democrat Holly Kearns had a, a very different opinion to that of independent Danny Healy Ray. The current law is restrictful and it's harmful. It puts in place arbitrary barriers, creates uncertainty for medical professionals and forces women and couples to continue to travel for termination. It is within the government's power to change all of this, so it must act. The bill before us needs to be voted down today. I welcome the government's position to help achieve that, um, but I will still push for the real review that we so desperately need. This bill is upsetting for the women and families who have had later abortions, and it's insulting um, to our healthcare practitioners. And I think for anybody canvassing during the referendum, they'll remember that when you were knocking on doors and talking to people, the people that were really voting yes for, a lot of people, was those people who needed to travel uh, for terminations for medical reasons, and they're still being forced to do that. This bill represents sensationalism that has no place in any humane system concerned with best medical practice. And it definitely has no place in a republic which voted overwhelmingly for free, safe and legal abortion care. The days of this House controlling the bodies of women and girls has passed, whether the sponsors of the bill realise it or not. Holly Kearns of uh, the Social Democrats. One of uh, the sponsors of the bill is independent TD Michael Healy Ray. In a society, Minister, where animals are protected from pain and pain, are, and it's, it's a requirement uh, to administer uh, pain relief to animals and to ensure that they're not subjected to cruelty. The many veterinarians that we have in the, in the countryside in the parish that I'm from, we have people like Mike DeVito Sullivan, we have people uh, like um, Brendan Tehan, we had great people like Leslie Dignam, good vets that went around and took care of animals. And now we have a situation where we are being denied, denied the right to take care of our small little unborn babies and to protect them from peel, feeling pain. I just, I find it impossible to believe that the government are not willing to accept this number one here this evening because you want to deny that they are a thing called a person. I have always said inside this doll, and it hurts a lot of people when I say it, that from the moment of conception to the moment of death, a person is a human being. There were very strong feelings on both sides of the House. Michael Healy Ray there on one side. On the other side, people before Prophet TD, Breed Smith. And how it happened was through people power and in particular through the massive determination of young women all over the country to see their rights uh, attained and not to have to live in the dark um, the dark atmosphere that their mothers and sisters and all the rest of it had to live and grow up in and be sexually active in and be uh, potential mothers in or not at all. And that is why I think what's happening here today is straight out of the playbook of American fundamentalism. And it's interesting that not that long ago, uh, there was a bill brought in in Texas, which was based around, and one of the most honest speakers here today actually was Deputy Danny Healy Ray, because several times he mentioned the heartbeat and the heartbeat and the heartbeat. And there is a piece of legislation in Texas known as the heartbeat legislation, which basically bans abortion once a heartbeat can be detected in a fetus six weeks. Most of us wouldn't know we were pregnant at six weeks. And yet the Texas uh, legislation, which they've been chipping away at for decades since uh, Roe Wade 
the Roe versus Wade judgment, um, what that does is it makes it possible for any citizen to sue another citizen for helping a woman to procure abortion. Really dark ages stuff, and this is in a country where abortion was uh, once upon a time available and once upon a time part of the, the health service. So chipping away at women's rights is something we can expect over the next period. People before profits, Breed Smith. Back to the rural independents and Sean Kenny this time. Some of the House would say that this matter should be left to the doctor to decide. But you will see how flawed this view if you consider it. If a doctor were about to perform a procedure intended to take your life without your consent, would you think that that same doctor is well placed to decide whether or not to give you the pain relief? Should the Animal Health and Welfare Act leave it to the vets to decide whether or not to give pain relief to animals? No, it doesn't. The law does not stop at the hospital door. Doctors are subject to legal duties and prohibitions of many kinds. The last three years of complete failure to ensure pain relief to unborn children have shown that this cannot be left to the medical profession and must be addressed through statute. Please take this opportunity to address it now for every unborn child who desperately needs the protection of this bill. The arguments made by Sean Kenny and other rural independents were not accepted by People Before Profits Mick Barry. Here we have a bill from a group of right-wing deputies who supported the de facto abortion ban, who supported a policy which forced hundreds of thousands of Irish women to travel abroad for health care, and who are trying to copy the playbook of the Trumpian right in the United States, who are trying to undermine Roe versus Wade. Here, they want to roll back the gains made by women in 2018 when the country voted for repeal. And we have a Fianna Fáil TD co-signing the bill, backing the, the, these reactionary arguments up and facing no censure or disciplinary action from his party. But more importantly, we have a Fianna Fáil Minister for Health trying to narrow the three-year review of the legislation and shut out the voices of women who have real issues with the way the Act operates in practice. I'm talking about women who rightly feel that the three-day wait provision is deeply patronising. That's Mick Barry of People Before Profit. Now, there are two local TDs who are members of the Rural Independent Group. One of those is Peter Fitzpatrick. Providing unborn humans with pain relief is a measure based upon fundamental principles of human rights and ethics. I would appeal to deputies to approach this bill on its particulars and judge it on its merits. The most recent guideline from January 2020, set out by the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in Ireland, makes no reference to provision of pain relief medication for babies in late-term abortions. By contrast, extensive protection exists in Irish law for animals to ensure that animals do not suffer unnecessary pain. If, if basic animals' welfare is considered necessary and good, why is the same principle not applied to humans? This is a legitimate question, and this should be, should, should be addressed without any sidestepping of the issue. A similar amendment to the bill was tabled in 2018, but unfortunately rejected before the new abortion law came to force. I hope that the passage of time and the presence of new evidence which has since come to light will impact deputies who consider this bill today with a fresh perspective. It is extremely unfortunate that pain relief was not included within, within the abortion uh, legislation from the outset. This would have avoided the issue surfacing now, but the best time to rectify this issue is now rather than later. Provide, providing pain relief medication for unborn babies undergoing surgical procedures for spina bifida and, and such like is widespread general practice. However, during abortions, the same measures are not applied. This is unfair, inconsistent 
which is which is not based upon any ethics or scientific consideration, but is based simply on whether a baby is wanted or unwanted. Peter Fitzpatrick is an independent TD for Louth. Thomas Pringle is an independent TD for Donegal. They're on opposite sides of the country. They were on opposite sides of this debate. Doesn't the whole rural independent group know well that doctors will administer pain relief when required. They do not need to be legally obliged to do so. Any suggestion that this is not the case is completely disingenuous, and I think Carolyn Olin herself has confirmed that this is the case. Most instances of late-term abortions occur due to high-risk or emergency situations, and so this bill is attempting to address an issue that doesn't exist yet, or even exist. It's a made-up issue and a made-up bill with a sole purpose to mislead the public. Let's call this what it is. This is nothing but an attempt to rally, rally anger and cause outrage. I am not naive enough to think that the rural group don't know what they're doing by introducing this. This bill has nothing to do with good medical practice. This is a blatant attempt to create confusion and upset and nothing more. I want to emphasise that technically this bill does absolutely nothing. The sole aim of the bill is to confuse and to divide the public. It is malicious, disingenuous and a massive waste of time, I think, to be frank. This group is is against all abortion at any stage and that's fair enough. By any means, and I refuse to indulge in this hidden agenda to obsess over what women do with their bodies, dressed up as a bill. 66.4% of this country's electorate voted to repeal the 8th in 2018. Yet this group are still forcing conversations about abortion care. It is very clear that our citizens want, and we would do well to respect this vote rather than trying to undermine it at every given opportunity. Independent Thomas Pringle, the second local TD who is a member of the Rural Independent Group, is Aintu's Patter Tobin. When it comes to this law, these same political parties will argue that the state imposes in legislation rights for animals. And indeed, we have those rights for animals in law in this state. And I read it, it says, A person shall not perform an operation or procedure involving interference with sensitive tissue or bone structure of an animal without the use of an appropriate anaesthetic. And yet, the same right is not being afforded to individual living human beings during late-term abortions in this state. There's a cruelty, there's a lack of compassion, there's a lack of sympathy in the ideology that forces these political parties to completely ignore the humanity of these living individual human beings. Arguments for and against this bill, which was rejected by government. As I recently commenced a review of the operation and effectiveness of the provisions of the Health Regulation of Termination of Pregnancy Act 2018, uh, at this point it is necessary to decline the private member's bill in terms of a second reading. Uh, What we need to do now is allow uh, the review to be completed. Uh, We need to allow for its recommendations uh, to be considered. Let's see what those recommendations may be. They may be operational. They may be. That's uh, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to Tom, who is in Dundalk. Thanks very much, Tom, for your call to the programme. Tom is wondering why Neffet and the government didn't have a sur- sense of urgency before now uh, about getting the boosters rolled out. Uh, Tom says uh, there's a, a mad rush now and he, he's concerned that they've decided to waive the 15 minutes that you have to wait after getting the jab to make sure you didn't have an adverse reaction. He, he thought that that was a, a 
sensible thing to be doing and it was reassuring to people like him. Thanks for that, Tom. Uh, I can understand where you're coming in from. Uh, some people will be asked this. Uh, Dr Duffy uh, did tell us earlier on in the programme to wait the 15 minutes but they feel it's not necessary for most uh, and that mad rush <laughs> is feeding into that thinking, no doubt, and uh, it means that they can get through more people quicker. Deirdre in Kells says, if the doctors are not seeing as many patients, then people will end up going to the hospitals and even uh, make matters worse, uh, clogging up the hospitals. Uh, the doctors are seeing patients. They're saying uh, if uh, you need uh, something for uh, your driving licence or that, maybe you could hold off uh, those kind of uh, more ministerial things that people see doctors for, dear but if you're not well, call your doctor. Uh, on the issue of spiking, David says he wants to know how can you inject someone without them knowing it? Surely they'd feel it, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think uh, we're talking about uh, places uh, where people are on top of each other and that's why I, I said to Nolan Blackwell, uh, is it a nightclub? Uh, and that, David, uh, and maybe there's a bit of drink taken and God knows what. Uh, is happening, uh, but apparently it's happening in all sorts of places. I don't know. The whole thing is a mystery to me as much as it is to you, David. Uh, Mary said it was frightening to listen to that piece with Nolene Blackwell. It's shocking to think that people can't just go out and enjoy their night without having to worry about being spiked. What kind of person does that to somebody else? It's disgusting behaviour and anyone found doing it should be locked away. They should be locked up and have the key thrown away. Thanks uh, for that, Mary. It's all part of a campaign against it uh, which was launched by the Minister for Justice, Helen McEnany yesterday and she's been making the point that you could spend three years in prison if convicted for poisoning somebody because that would be the charge. Uh, a call from Alan who has type 2 diabetes and he's after having COVID. Will he have to wait six months for the booster vaccine with his underlying condition? Uh, apparently the HSE say if you've had a, a confirmed case uh, since completion of your primary course uh, the booster dose should be deferred for at least six months after diagnosis. Uh, so that uh, would seem to be the case, Alan. Yes, you do have to wait uh, six months. Uh, but you should actually have good protection, if not great protection at this stage, because you've been vaccinated and you've had COVID on top. And apparently the combination of that uh, gives you very good prote- protection. Tommy in touch to Command Anne Dempsey uh, and all of the people who work so hard on Senior Line. It really is wonderful work that they do, Tommy. You're dead right to uh, take the time and call and compliment them for it. He says the work that they do is invaluable and it offers a lifeline to so many older people. They need this uh, service and it's great that they have it. There's lots of older people who have nobody to speak to, not another human being to talk to from one end of the week to the other. And without services like Senior Line, Tommy says uh, it uh, would make him sad to think that that was the case. But good to hear Anne talk about the importance of feeling seen when for the most part you don't feel like anyone sees you. No one should feel alone at Christmas. Thank you, Tommy. Nice call. Uh, A call from somebody else uh, on the fetal pain relief bill. Sarah in touch saying it's laughable hearing a group of middle-aged men trying to dictate to the women of Ireland what they can and cannot do with their own bodies. Thanks for that, uh, Sarah. Uh, Text to us uh, from somebody in relation to that saying uh, that the government is a disgrace Uh, when it comes to refusing pain relief uh, to unborn children. It should have been discussed uh, on the night that the laws were being introduced. I think one of the points that we're making uh, is uh, that pain relief can be 
administered if that's what the doctor feels is uh, appropriate. Um, uh, text, uh, I'm not sure who this is from, I don't think it's signed. Uh, it's about spiking from somebody who says, my daughter was spiked in a late night bar and she had a, a lucky escape. She left her drink to go to the ladies and reckons that when she came back, it had been spiked in her. She quickly realised that something wasn't right. She found it hard to talk and her legs and her arms became very weak. It seemed to her that she was very drunk and all of a sudden when she had only had two drinks, luckily her friend realised something was wrong and got her out of the place, got her into a taxi and by the time they got to their apartment she was practically comatose, so bad that the taxi man had to help to lift her into the house. She was very sick for days after. A hugely scary experience but could have turned out to be a lot worse. And the caller says, thanks for highlighting this and raising awareness. I think it's a lesson to all of us, isn't it? And I think particularly of concern to young women or parents, family, friends of young women and, you know, maybe mention it uh, don't leave your drink unattended uh, whatever about somebody sticking a, a needle into you, uh, you may not be able to do anything about that, uh, but if you leave your drink on the table and you go off to the ladies or somewhere else for that matter and you're not watching your drink uh, it can happen uh, and it has been happening and I suppose that is the lesson for all of us, but particularly as I say, for young women who may be out on a, a night out, simply enjoying themselves innocently as the case may be. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. I don't know if uh, you're thinking ahead to, to next year yet, uh, but I, I bet Ken O'Healy is. He's on the line. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Oh, I'm grand. Good I, I, I will eat my hat if you haven't got plans in place to get er, up early on the 1st of January 2022 and go up to the motorway to protest over the toll and to have it uh, abolished. Uh, you've been doing that for what, 15 or 20 years? Well, since the inception of uh, the tolls, or since they implemented the tolls on Drogheda in 2004, uh, there's been a protest held there. So it's gone from 2004 to the present day. Well, it's obviously the, the most unsuccessful protest ever, if you don't mind me saying so, Ken. Uh, and the reason I say that is because uh, the toll will be there next year, even though it'll be there on the 1st of January. But not only that, but it'll be more expensive to go through it. Yeah, well, I accept that actually, uh, you know, we haven't had an immediate impact. We did get some small concessions, uh, which a, a, a kind of a toll holiday for HGVs. We highlight the fact actually that the... Uh, that, uh, the the two-hour return journey uh, was being highlighted by, by the toll company, and we got signs for up. So we've had a few success along the way. But the reality is actually is that I suppose the campaign that I've been uh, uh, working on is that there's a toll, uh, sorry, there's a, a contract in place, uh, and it's a 30-year contract. And in February 2034, which is only 12 years from now, it will be due for renewal. And the idea is that uh, between now and then that your your local TDs uh, should be made very well aware that the renewal date is a campaign that we should be looking at that and have the removal of the tolls at junction 10 and 11 and specifically those secondary tolls that's placed on the town of Drogheda. Mm. And if I can just make one point and it's just quickly, I yep. won't get bogged mm. down in, in percentages or anything like that. But for anybody travelling between junction 10 and 11, 
to, in other words, to use that short skip from one shopping centre to the shopping centre maybe on, on the other side of the, of the bind, it'll cost them 66 cents per kilometre. If you're travelling from Drogheda to Dublin, it's 5 cents per kilometre. So that small section that the Drogheda people are, people who are using the shopping centres in the both sides of Drogheda, uh, it's the highest toll in Ireland. Yeah, well, you've and spent a lot of time thinking about it and it's heartfelt, yeah. as you say. I mean, you're going into, what is it, your 17th, 18th year of protesting a- about this and you've always been opposed to it. And when the tolls were first introduced, it had a detrimental impact uh, on Drogheda because all the trucks avoided the toll and went into the town. I'm not sure if it's as bad these days as it was then, but we're looking at huge increases in the cost of fuel. Uh, they're talking about 10 cent on cars now. It looks as though there will be increases on uh, bigger vehicles as well across the year, Ken. Uh, would you expect to see that volume of traffic come back into Drogheda? Well, as I said, is that the, 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 I think the inflation has increased significantly during the 2020 to 2021. The figure up prior to 2020, before the pandemic hit in, was 1.4, whereas it actually increased by 2.9 in that one-year period, bringing it to a total of 4.3. So you can see that the impact of of, uh, uh, the the pandemic has had on the tolls. But that that, that whole burden has now been shifted to the ordinary motorists using that motorway, which I think is, is uh, is not fair. Uh, is that there should be some sort of relief being put in there. Mm. Um, there's a lot of ways that, the, that we can deal with it. And the one thing I did campaign for, sorry, I'm probably going away from your question, yeah, yeah. Uh, is that like, people coming in, say, from the village of Tully Allen, mm. which is on the north side of, of Drogheda, and dropping their children maybe to school uh, on the Ratmullen side mm. uh, in St. John's, St. Paul's and St. Oliver's. We had looked to see if we could use and get a return journey from one side of the town to the other and back again. That's within Uh, a half hour, is it? Within a half hour. Mm. That fell on deaf ears. There is so much that can be done to alleviate the ongoing traffic chaos and all that. But you know know how hard the truckers are are finding it. Uh, I mean, whether you agreed or disagreed with the protest and bringing Dublin to a standstill, they've done that twice because they can't afford to fill up uh, their trucks with diesel. Uh, They'll be looking for savings. You'd be wondering now if they're going to avoid the tolls, if the tolls are uh, going to continue at the existing rate, let alone increase in price. Well, I honestly think that the, the, the HGV vehicles should certainly get, I mean, the Rally for I know Fergus O'Dowd, uh, our local TD, uh, supported very much the toll holiday for HGVs as an experiment. I think if they can do it at the Dublin Port Tunnel, they should be offering the same incentive to HGVs at the M1 and the slip, the slip roads into Drogheda. And that way then it will relieve, relieve Drogheda of all that extra HGVs both now and and the possible increase that may come because of this increase. Okay. And obviously, there is an ongoing. I mean, yeah. I live on. I live on that corridor between uh, the North Road and heading t- south towards Drogheda, and I'm very aware that on a daily basis, there's large HGV trucks coming down that road. That obviously, and I know where they're going to. So I'm not going to name the companies, mm. but I know where they're going to. Yeah, and, and they damage the road, and then that costs the council repaired. Listen, Ken, I, I, I'm out of time. Just tell us. I probably won't talk to you before the new year. What time will you be at the toll on New Year's Day? 
I will be there around 10, half 10 o'clock. Okay. And, uh, and I'll be above on the Denor Road at Junction 9. Okay, good to talk and to you, Ken. Anybody else, and if people want to uh, give a little bit of support, if they can't make it there in a day, they can tip into Facebook maybe and just send a little bit of support. Or Great. Send, okay. You know. Okay. I got to go, Ken. Sorry about that. But thank you for joining us. Uh, that's anti toll protester Ken O'Healy bringing our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie. 